Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here today. Uh, a while ago, when uh, uh, we were trying to gracefully get a response, uh, good job. I was reminded one time of a young pastor who came and he took a church, and he noticed the first Sunday he preached, there was a man who openly would occasionally display his firearm to him. He'd move his coat back, and man, it made him a nervous wreck, so he made a beeline. He thought, I just want to straighten this out. He made a beeline to the guy, and he said, sir, you've made me so nervous exposing that handgun during the service. He said, son, don't, you don't have a thing to worry about. He said, we're not after you, we're after the people that asked you to come. <laughs> so take it out on the people that asked me to come, right? So, <clears throat> you know, uh, there were these four guys. They were actually sophomores in college, and uh, they decided to move about 30 minutes from campus in an apartment. And uh, they had this English class with Dr. Jones, and it was a very difficult class. So one, they'd meet on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and one Friday they had this huge midterm test due. Well, unfortunately, they partied all night, and they woke up about 10.30, and they were just panicked. And uh, John, the leader of the party group, said, guys, don't worry about a thing. said, just next Monday, just come with me, and, and I'll show you how to handle it. So j just don't say a word. So just, he said, we'll go a little early because Dr. Jones is always there early. So they get there early, and they walk in, and she's at her desk, and they said, Dr. Jones, we're so sorry we missed the midterm, but we had a flat. And there was just no way we could get, get here. Had a flat, and we left right on time, but the flat and bad traffic, we couldn't change it hardly. She said, guys, don't worry about a thing. So we got about 10 minutes before class. Said, Let's just take it right now. Said, this is the deal. If you get the right answer, everybody gets the same answer, y'all get 100. Said, if you, one of you gets a different answer, you get an F. Now you go over in this corner, and you go over in that corner. She put them in the four corners. She said, this is all you got to do, guys. Just write down which tire it was. <laughs> so needless to say, they didn't do very well on that test. So <laughs> anyway, okay, I'm not going to take long today. If y'all will listen real fast. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher or master, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. Now let me tell you why he says that. No one's good but God alone. Are you saying I'm God? That's what Jesus is, Jesus is really saying. If you're saying I'm God, that's good, right? Because he is God. Okay, next verse. <clears throat> you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Now say one thing with me. One thing. Say that with me. One thing. One thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. And look at the next verse. It's a tragic verse. And... At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. One thing. You know, uh, I want to tell you this morning, if you uh, don't realize this, Jesus Christ is a strategist. He is, he knows how to get into our stuff, right? 
and how to deal with what we are dealing with. Now, one time I had a class, uh, and it was with Dr. Elmer Towns. I don't know if anybody knows who that is, but he's really, he's taught since the 70s at Liberty. And uh, he taught, I thought this is going to be the most boring class in the world, Theology 520. You know, who needs Theology 520 when you're 40, 50 years old? But anyway, he taught a chapter on the temptability of Christ. And it was one of the greatest greatest teachings I've ever heard. He said, you have to remember this, that you're tempted where you can fall. Now, I'll just be honest this morning. I get up, I got up and not one thought came to me about smoking any marijuana. But I have areas that I can fall that I'm tempted in. And so he said, every place, you have to remember this, Jesus wasn't tempted with the things that contemporary people are tempted with, but where he was tempted, he could have fallen. And that's the way this passage is. Now, it would be incorrect this morning for anyone to stand up and say, well, I tell you, if we just all sell everything we have and give it to the poor, we'd all be happy. That's nothing. That, that's not what this passage is about. It may be much bigger if the Lord would say, you know, you need to forgive your son-in-law. That's the one thing that you lack. Or the Lord may say, you know, you need to give me, uh, you need to give me your children or your child. You need to really give me lordship over your family. So many times uh, money is denigrated by people and money, even though Jesus, 75% of his parables were about stewardship, money is neither good or bad. It's kind of like a broom. You can take a broom and beat the devil out of somebody with it or sweep the floor, right? It's according to whose hand it's in. There's nothing wrong with blessings. and There's nothing wrong with this guy. You know, we just... You know, we have, to, we have to realize that we're so hard on biblical characters. And we say, can you imagine the stupidity of that guy? But yet every day the Lord probably, I know, asks us for the one thing in our life that would really liberate us and set us free to be all He's called us to be. And He's a strategist. He's not going to ask me to do what you need to do. And I think error comes in the church many times when the preacher gets on a kick and he thinks everybody else ought to be on the same kick. <laughs> the individualized Word of God can be for the preacher, but the preacher can't put that over on you. You see what I'm saying? Because that may not be where you're struggling today. And it may be about money, but it may be about forgiveness. And I'm going to talk to you this morning about some people in the Bible uh, that had one thing they had to do. Uh, he wants what, what Jesus really wants in our life today is what is contesting His Lordship. That's the strategy. That's a strategic part of the Lord. He asks me for what is contesting for His Lordship. You know, the Old Testament said, I'm to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. That's holistically love God. Love my neighbors myself. And Lordship is basically loving the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And as far as we know, dealing with the things that would contest that Lordship. And that's why I love the Christian life. You know, if you lift weights, you're going to max out. Did you know that? You really are. Or are you going to kill yourself trying to unmax? If you do a lot of things in life, you're going to max out. They asked Howard Hughes one time, how much is enough money? He said, I don't know, but be a little more. And all this, but really in the Christian life, we go from glory to glory to glory to glory by beholding Him. And listen, the psalmist said, deep calls to deep. Let me promise you this. The deeper you go into your obedience walk with God, the deeper God will call you. 
He's good about that because He wants to be Lord over all of our life. Nothing withheld. You know, uh, anybody here ever heard of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School? It's in Deerfield, Illinois. It's kind of like the Harvard of theology, uh, theological seminaries. And uh, I actually took a correspondence course three hours from there called Sermon on the Mount. Dear God, about halfway through, I went, Lord, why did I do this? I not only spent a lot of money, but this is ridiculous. So anyway, it was so interesting. My textbook was written by Tal Bonham, who was used to be the head of the Baptist uh, Evangelism Department in Oklahoma. So I thought that was interesting. Even the, even the free evangelical church can see the value of the Baptist. <laughs> anyway, I took a class there one time. and it, it's, it's a real conservative school. And every year they have a missions conference for the on-campus students. Not too long ago, they had a guy named John Stanza there who is a famous missionary all over the world. And he got up and preached this rousing sermon about missions and making Jesus Lord of your life and doing what the Lord wants you to do. And then at the end, he said, can I pray for the student body? And this is his prayer. Dear Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. But, Lord, don't send me to Africa. Amen. You see the power of that? That might be the very one thing that the Lord would call you to do. And when we stipulate our commitment to God or limit our commitment to God, you know, John Bassano, John Bassano used to say, uh, tell a story about a lady who came to him one time at First Southern Dale City and said, Brother John, I know you're a man of prayer. said, I want you to pray for Billy, my son. He said, what do I need to pray for Billy about? He said, pray for him that he can find the will of God so he can see if he wants to do it or not. And John Bassano said, I will not do it. I will pray he will know the will of God, but I'm not going to include that part to see if he wants to do it or not. <laughs> but that one thing, anything, uh, think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, see the poshness of all this? You guys, this is all yours. But see that tree over there? Don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat thereof, you shall die. It's a spiritual thing. You know, uh, Cain and Abel were walking by the garden one day, and Cain looked over at Abel and said, isn't that a beautiful place? He said, yeah, we used to live there before Mama ate us out of the house and home. <laughs> but it falls on the men, so that's our problem, right? But, and I, always, uh, I heard somebody preaching one time. They said, always remember it wasn't the apple in the tree. It was the pear on the ground. But there was just one thing. God said, there's just one thing. Just don't eat of that. And in their, in their innate nature... And in my innate nature, there is this desire to do the opposite. Ron Dunn used to say, if you want to know what Jesus would do, just do the opposite of the first thing you thought of. <laughs> and sometimes that's so true. Adam and Eve, one thing. How about Abraham? Started at 75 believing God, and at 100 had a son of promise. His name was Isaac. He named him Laughter because God received the last laugh in that. A man 100 years old and a woman 90 could have a baby. So we got it all settled, right? No. This is about the time we got all the boards nailed down. God comes along and says, he says, Adam, or Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, take him out and offer him. One thing. Now over in Hebrews, there's a key passage. You'll never understand the the spirit behind this move until you understand this verse. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, And Abraham, when tempted, it says in one translation, but when tested by God, offered, past tense, his son to God. 
Well, he didn't offer him. People say, yeah, but he did. In his heart, he offered him. It was done. And Isaac's probably about 17 years old. And he, he's walking along up this Mount Moriah place. And he looks and he sees the wood. But uh, he doesn't see the lamb, right? Or the ram. That's because Abraham was going to put Isaac as the lamb in that place. Just one thing. How about Moses? Spent 40 years. We talked about Moses here already. He's one of my favorite Bible characters. Especially that part when he's so obstinate and rebellious against God. It reminds me, him of, me of me. Anyway, when he, when he gets mad at the people and strikes the rock and doesn't speak to it. You ever done that? Speaker, is that a temptation sometimes? You'd like to just, you'd like to just strike the rock instead of speaking to it anyway. But to live above with those we love, well, that will just be glory. But to live below with those we know, that's quite another story, right? So, but Moses brought one thing out of that experience with him that was very, very, very personal and important to him, and it was the rod. It's what he made his way up the mountains with. It's what he probably beat off a lot of the wild animals with. It was semblance of his old life. It was the shepherd's rod. And the Lord, He gets Moses all lined out after Moses gives every excuse. As bad as the woman, the pastor said, Margaret, you hadn't been to church in a long time. She said, I can't come. Said, it's too far to walk and too close to drive, preacher. I'm sorry. But anyway, that's the way Moses was. He just gave every excuse he could give. God said he couldn't talk, and then he never, poor old Aaron never got to say another word when it got rolling. But anyway, Moses has this rod, and God says, Moses, what's that in your hand? He said, oh, it's the rod. And I think there's a little bit more of that conversation it's my 357 Magnum, Lord. It's what I depend on for my safety. God says, throw it on the ground. And it became a snake. And then God said, pick it up by the tail. Which it, y'all know Russell Fugate? Anybody here know him? I lived next door to him one time, and I looked out in the backyard. Dear Lord. He was playing with rattlesnakes in his backyard. And he's rolling them around, trying to get in a little sun. I tell you what, it, it, it scared me to death in the house. I even got my shotgun in case one of them tried to get through the window. But anyway, but you know, I know this. Russell used to bag snakes. Y'all remember that? He was a world, he was Oklahoma bag champion. I know this about people who handle snakes. You don't ever grab them by the tail because that leaves the business end free. But that's what he did. And it became a rod again. But the Bible says there's something happens because he gave that one thing to God. That rod becomes no longer the rod of Moses, but the rod of God because he gave it to God. And God gave it back. Abraham gave Isaac to God. God gave him back. Anyway, how about uh, Elisha? Did you know Elisha had to be a wealthy dude? Not Elijah, now Elisha. He had 12 teams of oxen, and he was running the 12th team. So he had 11 people running 11 other teams of oxen. And you know, he must have had a big extended community there because... Elijah comes by and touches him with the mantle, and that's a, a symbol in the Old Testament of adoption. One, there was a ceremony where somebody would touch somebody with their cloak or their mantle, and they would become a son. So Elijah's out here just following God, not realizing what he's doing. And he touches Elisha, and Elisha, he can't get rid of him. He's like a chicker on you. He just everywhere, he goes to four cities, and every time he looks, there's Elisha. Finally, Elijah looks at him and says, what in the world do you want from me? He said, I want a double portion, and I want that little mantle you've got there that I've seen all that stuff. By the way, I haven't calculated them. I've read 
He wanted a double portion, right? Elijah did 14 miracles. Elisha did 27, and one after he died, when they put the man on his bones and he came back to life. That was God saying, yeah, we got to have one more to, for the double portion. So he gave him... Anyway, that's something to think about, isn't it? Anyway, so you know what he did? After he, there's one thing in his life, and you know what it is? It's his occupation. So guess what he does? Now, an oxen weighs... The reason I know this is, you know, you can Google anything. I Googled last night, and the average oxen weighs about 1,198 pounds. We got 12 of those oxen. He kills them all, takes his plows, builds a fire, and roasts them, and everybody eats them. You know what he's saying? The one thing that would keep me from following the Lord is my occupation. So I'm going to burn it all up and eat it up, and then I'm just going to follow God and get that double portion. Just that one thing. Isn't that amazing? And that's what he did. The Bible says he burned up his implements. One translation said he burned all of his plowing equipment up. Now get this picture. That would be like you drive by your neighbor's house and he's got all of his cattle out there and they're all dead and they're skinning them and the, all of his tractors are burning and they got this huge brush fire going. They're fixing to roast everything and have everybody over. It's the end of the farmer, right? <laughs> anyway, and by the way, I've been reading a book called Giving Yourself Permission to Quit. Sometimes we need to quit things. Did you know that? Crazy things that we do that keep us from the one thing we know we should do. Well, I'm going to wrap this up here. How about Jonah? Now think about this. To Jonah, the Ninevites were like, they were like ISIS would be to us. The most notorious, vile people in the world. Everything bad that had ever happened to Jonah's family had happened because of the Ninevites. So one thing Jonah has to do God comes along and He says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great capital city of Assyria, and cry and say, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And Jonah said, the one thing, I ain't going to do it. I hate them folks. And if I go and tell them what God said, God will save them. And I'm not going to do it. Well, he had to go to Wales University and get him a seaweed diploma and get spit out on the bank, and the Assyrians believed in the fish god, so they're all out there one day, and all of a sudden the big fish comes and goes, and spits a guy out on the bank. They're ready to listen. And this is what he said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And, if I, and the Bible says, God's word says, they repented from the greatest to the least. And Jonah went, I am so mad. I'm going to go out on the side of a hill, and I'm going to weep and lament, and I'm going to ask God to kill me, and I'm going to get me a shade tree, and I'm just going to grieve myself to death because... The one thing he had to give up was redemption to his enemies. Well, what about Matthew? Tax gatherer. You know why tax gatherers were so hated? They'd, they'd set up in public places. They'd be out in front of Walmart this afternoon. As you walked in the door, the big tax gatherer. And it was all Roman business, and you could fill out forms and do it anywhere. It was the first uh, mobile system in the world. This is the thing the tax gatherer would do. He'd look at your work and he'd say, okay, uh, let's see, Blake owes $225. I'm going to charge him $1,075. And everything he got over $225, it was his. Can you see why they were hated? Well, Jesus walks by Matthew and he says basically, why don't you come with me? And the Bible says Matthew left 
Now, the one thing that would keep him from Jesus was that greediness, cheating people. The Bible says he left the money tables and went with Jesus. You know, Rahab, we don't like to think about her being in our lineage, but she is. Yeah, she's in our redemptive family. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> you know what Rahab had to give up? Just one thing. You know what it was? Her reputation and her allegiance with Jericho. She also changed occupations when she invited the Hebrews into her world because she was going to be castigated by that system. But one week later, she hung a scarlet thread out the window, which is a sign of redemption. And because of that, her life changed. Why do we know that? Because she became an heiress, in a sense, and a part of our salvation. See, it wasn't a little thing to hide those Hebrew spies in, those, in the flax and in the wheat. It was life and death for her. Well, and then we get down to the rich young ruler. What did he have to do? Well, he'd done a lot of things. You know, I, I'm pretty sure if you look at those commandments, see there's two, there's a, the Ten Commandments are divided into vertical and horizontal touch. Vertical touch is you shall have no other gods before me, you worship no other gods, shall no, not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But the horizontals are do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Those are horizontal. That's what we do to one another. And I think all five of those are horizontal. So what Jesus asked for is the vertical thing. Oh, yeah, you want to be right with God? There's one thing you got to do. You've been treating humanity pretty good. If you really want to be right with God and experience lordship, you got to do this. So <clears throat> the rich young ruler made a choice. It wasn't about being rich. It wasn't about being young. It wasn't about being a ruler. It was the fact that Jesus is a strategist, and he asked you for what would contest his lordship. And when he asked me for it, I do one of two things. I either give it to him, and I'm so thrilled, or I withhold it, and I'm so sorrowful. See, to him that knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. It's terrible when we know what we should give the Lord, and we don't give it to him. Well, one thing. I'll give you a couple of illustrations here. By the way, David, I just want to throw this scripture in for you to meditate later. David in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, they wanted him to offer something. Uh, basically, just take it and offer it. And he said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to offer anything to God, anything that didn't cost me something. And that's what the one thing in lordship is about. It's going to cost us something. But if we give it, we have the joy of obedience. The greatest joy in our hearts is when we know God asked for something and we gave it to Him. When He asks us to forgive somebody and we truly forgave them. You know, years ago, <clears throat> I listened to a series of tapes by the, the man who was uh, later, probably about the same time, going to become the pastor of Crossroads Cathedral, Dan Schaefer. Anybody know where Crossroads Cathedral is? By the way, i uh, got a little trivia for you. The pastor there now, his name is Ted Miller. And his dad, Bill Miller, was a friend of mine and pastored the Methodist Church in Kiowa. And his mother, Alice Patton, graduated two years before I did. And their son is the pastor of Crossroads now. It's kind of interesting, uh, people's journey. But he's a great young man of God. I say young, he's probably 73 years old. But to me, that's young. So anyway, no, he's probably 45. 
I heard Dan Schaefer, he used to be the pastor of the Pentecostal church in Ada years ago, and he left that denomination, but he was actually preaching. They asked him, they had the nerve to ask him to come back after he left. And I listened to a series of tapes, probably 1985-ish, 87, and he told the story about how his ministry really started. He said, my wife and I, we started saving money and said we didn't have, you know, deposit boxes. We were so mobile. We started putting it in plastic bag in the deep freeze. He said, we'd slide 100 in there when we rarely, you got to realize this is back in the 60s, 50s and 60s. We'd slide 100 in there and we'd put it in the deep freeze. He said, one day I went in there and I said, honey, let's just count it. He said, bad, don't do that. He said, we counted it and he said, we had $2,000 in the deep freeze. By the way, they call that cold cash. And he said, we counted it. We were so excited. And of course, back then, that's like forty or fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 now. You know, you could, uh, I bought a 1973 Oldsmobile Cutlass brand new for $4,135. Well, I didn't buy it. I paid $140 a month for three years and thought I'd never get that thing paid for. But, you know, back in those days, I'd buy you, um, buy you half a new car. Well, anyway, he goes to this revival. And this guy's talking about Africa and the work of God in Africa and what God's doing in Africa. And he said... As clear as anything I've ever heard in my life, I heard God say, Dan, give it all. He said, Lord, you know, that's kind of like, would you say that again, please? And say it to my wife at the same time. And I think this is the way it happens. It's been years. God said, Dan, I said it clearly. Give it all. And his wife turned, I think, at the same time and said, you know that $2,000 we got? Yeah, we need to give it to build one of these churches in Africa. And then he said, I, we went, okay, he said, we got to go to the house and get it. So one of us is going to have to go get in the deep freeze and get it. But he said, then the Lord said, Dan, if you will do this, you will never lack for anything in your ministry. Ooh, that's exciting. You know who donated uh, that piece of land over for Crossroads is built? Dan Schaefer gave that church, that land, valued at $1.2 million dollars. He got into selling stuff and being blessed and real estate. And One time they got on to him because he made a large, large salary at his church. And he got up the next Sunday and he said, I hear some of y'all, y'all are kindly biff that I'm making so much money here at the church. He said, where were y'all when I was making $25? Shut your mouths. That's, that was Dan Schaefer at his best right there. Where were y'all when I was making $25, right? Anyway, he never lacked for anything in his ministry. Now, that's not about money. You know, because let me tell you, if I could give $2,000 today and never lack for anything in my ministry, I'd just ask Charles if I could borrow it. <laughs> Come on, y'all. We're, we're at church. We're supposed to have fun. We're the family of God. Y'all don't act this way at home, do you? You're with the family of God. Let's have... Anyway, my point is, it's not that the money, it's not the amount of anything. It was the one thing that Jesus asked for, and it was a painful thing but the joy of obedience and following through. You know, when I was a pastor, I didn't learn this until after I, I quit pastoring. I, I just wanted everybody to like me because I'd felt rejection all my life. So that was a big, big thing. And 
in about 2009, my boss in McAllister said, James, uh, you've said something about you want to go back to CPE at Integris. And I said, yeah, Janice, I'd really like to do that. I just got one more unit, and I'll have a whole year in, which really levels me for anything I want to do in chaplaincy. And she said, they won't pay for it, but she said, I'll pay you your day's work and your way up there and back if you want to go. Well, it's 17 weeks, so I went up there, and I thought, when I kind of walked in, I'm an older guy, everybody's going like, what's that old man doing here? But God had something he was going to ask. And I got in there and I started, and by the way, my supervisor died last summer. I loved her. She was, uh, unfortunately, from Texas A&M, but that was okay. Uh, I started to be, the Lord started dealing with me about this acceptance and people-pleasing thing in my life. And it was like a form of death because all I ever wanted was just everybody to like me. And all I wanted my kids to be, they, I just wanted them to be perfect all the time. Remember <laughs> anyway. I just wanted everybody to like me. Matter of fact, on Sunday out at there at uh, Day Spring, we'd you know, have a crowd and people go out and everybody like it, but it would be one or two people, you know. Hey, I think you kind of missed that over there, and I'd spend all week worried about what those people thought. If anything happened wrong in the church, I took responsibility for it. You know, if it snowed and we didn't get to have church, that was my fault. Anyway. I was in a session one day with Carrie Ertley, who was my supervisor, and she brought it up. She said, you really like to please people, don't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I really do, because somehow I don't feel rejected if everybody likes me. She said, and she looked at me, I'll never forget it. She was a, a large woman. She said, let me tell you something. If you really love people, now this is the one thing in my life that's holding me back, and I know it. If you really love people, you have to give them the privilege to not like you. Now, do you love people? And I said, well, I try to love people. She said, well, give them the privilege to not like you, and you'll be a free man. And when I walked out of that session, y'all, you ever had a heavy pack on your back? It's like when I walked out, out of that meeting, it was gone. And uh, unfortunately, I've kind of gone a little too far that way. I kind of expect people not to like me, especially, especially if I'm honest. But you know what? It used to devastate me, and I used to get real mouthy about it. You ever do that? Preachers do that when they go home. I was listening to Jimmy Buzzkirk this week, and his, he asked his wife to speak into his life. And they said, is that true, Jimmy? After every sermon she could speak into your life? He said, yeah, but we did have an arrangement after she did it so much that we wouldn't do it till Monday, that Sunday would be free. <laughs> So, you know, people not liking you, that was a big, that was the one thing. And I became a better chaplain. I became a better husband. I became a better person. I still want to, I still have to be honest that I like people when they like me better than when they don't like me. But if I love them, I've got to give them the freedom not to like me. Does that make sense? Just the one thing. God didn't ask me for money because that, you know, I, that wouldn't be anything, you know, I've always just been real content. I think it's because of the way I was raised. Just, you know, somebody said when you throw a bulldog through the side of your house and not hit his head on any of the boards, you're pretty happy. You know, when you're first inside the bathrooms, Oklahoma Baptist University, everybody's griping and cussing about how bad the showers are. You're going, this is wonderful. <laughs> you know, it's heat, heat. But anyway, I've just never been that. But I do have, remember, Jesus is a strategist. He, he's not talking to me about my money. He's talking to me about my life and about 
you know, I know what my one thing is today. Isn't it a shame that I, I have to tell you what I know my one Goliath is? Sometimes I beat him. Sometimes I don't. But anyway, I'm going to close there. Everybody okay? One thing. You don't need me to tell you what it is. You know what it is. And if there's nothing today, we want you to dance around the church when it's over here after a while because you're a rare person when you have no, nothing in your life contesting the Lordship of Christ. Did you know, I was talking a while ago seriously about unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will contest the Lordship of Christ in your life because you have to forgive. It will. Bitterness. It will contest the Lordship of Christ in your life. Did you know the word bitterness in the Greek and the word snake bite are the same Greek words? Like being bit, bit, uh, poisonous snake biting you. Anyway. Now here's what we want to do. We want to bow our heads together. You know, if you know what it is, every head bowed, and it's, not, it's nothing meritorious or anything, but if you know what it is, just lift your hand to God to say, I know what it is. Anybody? Okay. You know, uh, I've known people, I'm just going to say this, because I can't tell you what it is, you know, but I've known people that their biggest fear was something was going to happen to their kids. That, you know, you have to put them in the, the lap of the Lord and realize that Jesus loves them more than you do. And you have to give them to Him because you can't protect them and keep them from the world and from all this going on. You have to trust God with your children. You have to be like Abraham It said, Okay, God, you gave him and you want him back? Okay, you can have him back. Am I going to be happy? No. Am I going to understand? No. But I'm offering him in my heart. And in his heart, he offered his son back to God. Anybody else just need to raise your hand and say, I, I know what it is in my life. Okay, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this church and every person that's here today for the depth and also the integrity of this fellowship and this community. Thank you that you raised this church up and that you have redemptive purpose. You never lose your redemptive purpose for us. And today, Father, we're talking about lordship and we're talking about the one thing that's as unique as our DNA that we know could keep us and could contest lordship in our life. The Bible's full of people that had to give up things. Money. Children. Positions. Prestige. Greed. But we thank you today, Jesus, you are the good shepherd. And when you point in our life to areas, it's for our betterment. Not for our demise or for our pain, but for our betterment. So that at night we can put our heads on our pillows and we can know. Just as we studied a few weeks ago about Flossie Roberts who said, As far as I know, I love Jesus with all my heart. When we come to that place of the joy of obedience, we've had revival, Father. Bless this church and bless us today. Sometimes we're just not ready at this moment to yield it. But we ask you to not leave us alone about what we need to give back to you. And what we need to return unto you and what we need to do. Keep dealing with us by your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.